I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the new podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller, and this program is one from the Archive a conversation I had back in 2010 with Robert Irwin about the extraordinary world of the camel. The odd thing was so many people I read or had conversations with believe the camel cannot have sex without human assistance. This is obviously not true, otherwise we wouldn't have feral camels all over Australia and elsewhere in the world. Robert Irwin is a true polymath. Arabist, historian, translator, novelist, publisher and anthologist. His book on the camel, in Reaction Books, Animal Series, draws on his deep knowledge of Middle Eastern history and culture. But it also extends far beyond. For example, it delves into the camel's prehistory, as you'll hear, and also presents a huge variety of camel history and lore from all over the world. But aren't camels simply obstinate, bad-tempered and dangerous? There's certainly no shortage of inventive curses aimed at camels from throughout recorded history. You sense that Irwin feels the camel has had a bad press, unjustly maligned, perhaps misunderstood, certainly understudied. But camels do have their defenders. Robin Davidson's trek across the Australian desert with a string of camels was made into the film Tracks. She claimed... They are the most intelligent creatures I know except for dogs, and I would give them an IQ rating roughly equivalent to an eight-year-old child. And desert explorer Wilfred Thesiger described a camel who felt dog-like devotion to her owner. At intervals throughout the night she came over, moaning softly, to sniff at him where he lay, before going back to graze. So there's more to the camel than their noxious reputation suggests. When we met back in 2010, Robert started by explaining how his book built on an earlier project he'd contemplated writing about these beasts. The book I was originally going to write was devoted solely to the camel's role in history and and what a large part it played in the spread of Islam and the rise of the Arab empires. The book I eventually wrote is much broader and deals with the camel in in the United States and Australia and China and it deals with literary and cinematic and artistic aspects, everything is there, and, and a lot about the physiology and evolution of the camel. And I, I got the, the the overall impression you felt the camel had been a bit maligned. I mean, obviously in, in Middle Eastern culture, it's got a, it's got a, a prized place, but particularly in Western culture, it's, it's not had an, an especially good press, has it? I think in the Middle Ages, the camel was okay. The people who wrote 
about the camel or painted it, as the case might be, didn't really have a clue. So sometimes they made it an emblem of uh, lust and sometimes they made it an, en an emblem of chastity and faithfulness. It, it was all over the place, medieval opinions. But in the 19th century, empire builders and sort of explorers without much experience, such as D Charles Doughty, really had it in for the camel. And Kipling is one of the best examples of somebody who again and again gets his knife out into the camel. Uh, not just that famous story, how the camel got its hump, but also quite a lot of poetry attacking the camel. In the 20th century, it's had some defenders. Uh, T. Lawrence, notably, very well informed and sensitive to the abilities and charms of the camel. Wilfred Thesiger, another. And uh, quite a lot of Australians uh, have taken to the camel and written in its defence, even though, of course, in Australia today, the camel is officially, the feral camel is officially classified as vermin and is regularly hunted down and culled. Now, let me ask you about your own personal encounters with camels. How, how far back do you go with camels? It must be about, ooh, not must be 25 years or more when I took my daughter for a ride on the Bactrian camel in Regent's Park Zoo. Um, these days you don't can't do that. It is politically incorrect to ride these animals and you, know, you, you can't pay 50p for a camel ride. The, the Bactrians are left alone to eat. Um, but then as I started to research the book, I became reluctantly aware I would have to ride a camel. And yeah, so I've, I think the first camels I rode were in Rajasthan, surprising number of camels in northern India that they really are used for for heavy labor uh, it's not just a tourist thing uh, they're also used for meat herded for meat of course as well um and subsequently i've ridden uh, a camel or two in let me think uh dubai and abu dhabi and and what is it like being up close to them well the well <laughs> Is it uh, frankly frightening if you've read my book? Because of the way the camel can kick quite unexpectedly in any direction, its, it's legs are extraordinary. Also, e even more likely to get spat at, and that it's and then it's there's its bad breath. That's a bit off-putting. Uh, the breath depends on what it's been eating, but generally camels have bad breath. And then to sit on a camel, and then its back legs go up, and you pitched forward and then suddenly the front legs go up. It's terrifying and equally terrifying coming down. And one gets one gets used to it, of course. You mentioned the fact that you went back into the prehistory of the camel. Tell me a little bit about the camel's ancestors, because you've got some some sort of me mega prehistoric camels pictured in the book. Yes, um, very difficult to get pictures of prehistoric camels from anywhere. I had a real hunt. Is, and, but uh, yes, the camel actually starts out in what is now the United States uh, in the Eocene period, though scientists can't agree within the nearest 100 million years when, apparently. Um, and the first camels were no taller than hares. Extraordinary. But then there's a proliferation of different types of camel, all of which are extinct now, um, many of which were, were giants. And, and they, they had they're very tall, very long necks, and they obviously fed off the canopy of forests, and, and they roamed across what was then the savannas of America. And most of them died out, and we get left with what is recognisably the camel today, which um, emigrated from, from America, uh, from North America, and it went in two directions. Some, a lot of the camels went south, and over the process of millions of years, turned themselves into llamas, vicunas, and alpacas, and guanocos, I think. Um, whereas other camels crossed the Bering Straits at the time when there was a land bridge there into Asia, and uh, became the, the Bactrian and the Dromedary. And the, these, of course, quite large camels, but nothing like the size of the prehistoric camels. 
quite recently in Syria, I think it was in about the last two or four or five years, they found the remains of a giant dromedary, um, which is interesting. And it seems to, it may have been killed by sort of fairly primitive sort of Stone Age people. But um, hitherto that, it hadn't been known that any giant camels had got across onto the Eurasian landmass. And you say that there is domestication and domestication when it comes to camels. Yes. What, tell, tell me about, a bit about that. When, when did that um, happen, as far as we can tell? Well, you can't. Um, flatly, the evidence isn't there. That's for starters. And, you know, and you can find camel remains in prehistoric sites. But that doesn't mean you've got to domesticate a camel. It just means somebody's got lucky and killed a camel or found one dead anyway. Also, there's the question, it's not one lot of domestication. It's domesticated in South Arabia at a different time from North Arabia. And that's a very different date of domestication from the domestication in China and Mongolia, which anyway is a different species, the Bactrian camel. And then there's a question of what do you mean by domestication? Probably the first camels were just kept in a herd and you got the milk and you got the meat. And when the beast died, you got the, the hide. Is a later development that they use for transport, transporting goods and for riding. And later yet, with sort of quite minor, what seems very simple developments of a certain type of saddle, they become seriously useful for warfare. And that's probably part of the broad background to the rise of Islam, the development of the North Arabian saddle. I love the fact that you, you cited the fact that in Arabic there is a verb which means to get off your camel and get onto your horse. Yes. And that was that was presumably in the process of warfare. You used the, the yes. camel for the, the, the long-distance transport, but then when you went into attack, that was the horse's job. In general, yes, the horse is faster and more useful on the battlefield and I think perhaps a little easier to control. Yeah. So they fought for preference um, on horseback, having used the camel to get there. Rather similar to the uh, camel corps that formed in the late 19th, 30th, 20th centuries in Britain, France and elsewhere, the general practice was to ride your camel to the place where you're going to fight and then dismount. A camel's too big a target and you know the camel gets startled by all the gunfire if it's right next to it. So in general, one rode the camel to the battlefield and, and then dismounted and fought on foot. But your major point, from which I slightly deflected you there, is that the camel can be seen as a major vector for the transmission or the spread of, of Islam. Yes, um, and I benefited greatly from an article that was published a few years ago in the, let me think, the Bulletin of the School of Oriental and African Studies by Patricia Croner, where she suggests that the Mecca and Medina in the 7th century were not really trading as spices as an old generation of scholars used to think. So, 7th century, we're talking about the century in which Muhammad begins to preach and the Arabs begin to fan out their armies from the Arab Peninsula. In the early 7th century and in the century before, there was a lot of warfare taking place between the, Arab, between the Romans and the Persians. And though it's not obvious to a modern person, warfare in this period ate up leather like um, modern warfare eats up oil. Um, the Roman army needed leather for its armour, for its tents, for its baggage, for, for its saddles, for everything. Um, and where are they going to get that? Obviously, they're going to go well, mostly for local providers. And this is where the Bedouin of the Hejaz come in with their camels, their, their camel. So they're trading in camel hide with the Romans, and probably also with the Persians. 
And that has two consequences. First, it makes them somewhat prosperous. And secondly, it makes them very familiar with how the Roman and Persian armies operate and makes them aware of where their weaknesses are. Probably also encourages Arabs to move out of the peninsula into Syria and Iraq, even ahead of the Islamic conquests. Now, your book is very richly illustrated in, in colour. And I wondered when the camel begins to be a creature with an iconography. When when do we see that um, starting? I, I can't pronounce authoritatively on that, but I would think that among the earliest representations of the camel are the ones you find in China, the ceramic camels that were customarily left in wealthy men's tombs. The, the camel would be part of the tomb apparatus, as it were, because it's carrying a load of wealth. It, it, it means that when the dead man comes into the next life there there's a, a load of wealth being carried by this well sort of incarnation reincarnation of the ceramic camel so and there are lots and lots of these ceramic camels every major museum in this country has at least one specimen of this type of thing on display and you mentioned earlier that the medieval European mind was a bit ambivalent about what value to ascribe to the camel. Mm. I mean, is, is that something which you find as you go around the, the camel world, that there are different attributes selected and highlighted in the, in the way that camels are portrayed yeah. in the iconography? Yeah, the most striking example is Japan, where um, the Japanese for camel, I think, hope I pronounce it right, is rakuda. And that really means pretty much the same as uh, sexual enjoyment. So the camel becomes a symbol of you know, connubial bliss, not something that had occurred to many people in the West. And the other thing about the camel in Japan is, that, of course, that until the Dutch paraded one around Japan in the 17th, 17th century, they'd never seen a camel. And I think all their artists and writers took it for granted. It was a mythological beast, just like a unicorn or a griffin bit of a shock when actually arrives with the Dutch East India Company. Your allusion to the sex life of camels, that was something else which you, you investigated in, in this book. Oh, yes, it was pretty disgusting, really. <laughs> which you illustrate in the book. <laughs> yes, I do. Two illustrations, yes. Um, yes, one sort of very plain diagram. Um, yes, now I think the camel urinates backwards, the male camel. It's, I've, got, I've forgotten the word for it, but, uh, but it, 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 as it were inseminates screws forwards um the other thing about it is that it, it when it's on the rut it splash sprays water all over the place so the female urinates like mad too it's all sort of this kind of conspicuous consumption you know using all this water in the hot thing to show how much desire you have or, or, or what a healthy water-filled beast you are it's, it's pretty disappointing the odd thing was so many people i read or had conversations with believe the camel cannot have sex without human assistance this is obviously not true otherwise we wouldn't have feral camels all over australia and elsewhere in the world what is the position of the camel in the world today i mean you talk about how arab nations have rather or some arab nations have rather distanced themselves from what they see as a part of their past but not necessarily part of their future so how do you how do you rate the, the camel's prospects Sorry to give such a complex and oblique answer, but there is no one single position. It's true that the use of the camel has declined drastically in countries like Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. The camel herding has almost vanished. On the other hand, in the United Arab Emirates, and I think in Oman and other areas, territories in the Gulf region, Saudi Arabia, there's quite a cult of the camel, and there are wealthy men who keep prestige herds, and, and there's 
camel racing and camel beauty contests and camels very much part of a almost artificially revived Arab culture there. There's a lot of money being spent on camel research in the peninsula. But you know, still not vast numbers. Most dromedaries are found not in the Arab world, but in um, North East Africa, countries like Kenya and so on, where they're doing okay. And, and there are a lot of international bodies pressing um, East Africans to, to take up camel herding rather than goats or cattle. It, it's ecologically much more satisfying. Economically, it'd be beneficial. And then you've got, well, you've got this vast herd of uh, herds rather of feral camels in Australia, camels that had been used as pack beasts before the coming of railway and, and, and the, the, the lorry, and they've been let loose in the desert and they've multiplied to a nightmarish extent, uh, and they're quite a problem. Then you've got a fairly flourishing domesticated population of Bactrian camels in China and Mongolia mostly, and they're fine, but there's yet another effectively another species of Bactrian camel, they're the wild Bactrian, and that's a, it, it, it exists only in certain rather remote areas of the desert on, on the sort of frontiers, cross, crossing the frontiers between China and Mongolia. And it's a seriously threatened species. Uh, there are hunters and there are mining prospectors and others out to kill them. Also there are wolves. The wild Bactrian is um, under more threat than the panda. It's one of the most seriously threatened species. Well, it, it is a different species. It has all sorts of different physical characteristics, no need to go into detail, but it also has a different DNA. People should get in touch with John Hare's Wild Camel Foundation and help him protect these wild camels. They're really rather interesting beasts. So it's, a, it's really a mixed picture for the camel? Absolutely, very mixed. Uh, the feral camels in Australia are going from leaps to bounds, and the, the, these other ones are practically extinct. I was talking to Robert Irwin about his book Camel, which is available in paperback in Reaction Books Animal Series. Full details at reactionbooks.co.uk. While you're there, do check out the whole series, which covers dozens of different species, from ants to zebras. And do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, subscribe to the programme on iTunes, where you can also catch up on any interviews you've missed. And if you feel so inclined, even leave a review. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch Sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.